This is the Padre Peregrino podcast. Theology from a wandering priest where you can learn scripture from the fathers and traditional catechisms for free. Join Father David Nix here for shows on church reform and world politics, all from the point of view of apostolic Catholicism, the original founded by Christ. This is VLX number 135, The God of the Living. We are in Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 to 33. VLX stands for Video Lexio Divina, your patristic Bible study and Ignatian prayer series online for free. God give you his peace, and nomine patris afidi, et spiritus amen. God, our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In nomine patris afidi, et spiritus amen. The same day Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. So first of all here, the Sadducees try to come to catch Jesus on the horns between two dilemmas that they give him. And I love his answer. He just says, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. I think that's how we should answer tricky people who come to us with complex questions when they actually don't want a real theological answer. Just say, you are wrong. But it really does come down, even in the 21st century, uh, to the real difference between true Catholics and heretical Catholics, who knows the scriptures and who really believes in the power of God. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Or maybe really it is true that the leftists today, as I keep saying on this podcast, are so much like the Pharisees that they know neither the scriptures nor do they believe in the power of God. But we have to be compassionate to leftists because I don't mean this in a condescending way. They really don't think they can be forgiven of their sins. I think maybe they would repent. Maybe they would tell people they're sorry. Maybe they'd get to confession if they actually believed God had the power to forgive them. So this is actually why we need tremendous charity to leftists and everyone else is, I, I think at the core of it, they don't believe they can be forgiven. And so we have to be that love, we have to be that charity to them uh, to show that we not only know the scriptures, but we believe in the power of God first, in the infinite power he had to create us. And as St. Augustine said, redeeming us was even more magnificent. Uh, we have to uh, show them that we were sinners once and still are sinners, but we've turned our back on perhaps sins just as big and um, we now try to walk with Christ in the light of redemption. So before we get to today's text, or rather section from St. Matthew, uh, I want to talk very briefly about why it's so important you're doing this series. And it, it truly is prayer, even though it's hard to do the imaginative way. Uh, I think that if you listen to the first few VLXs I did, you can go back, remind yourself how to do the Ignatian way of prayer. But today, in Matthew 22 and 23, 24, with all of these conversations with the Pharisees, I'm not going to set up a lot of the imagination, as I said before, 
but you can still do that if that's your way of prayer. But today I want to remind you, whether you're doing the study way of prayer or the imaginative way of prayer, this isn't the gravy of the spiritual life. This is the core of the spiritual life. St. Alphonsus said, He who prays is certainly saved. He who does not pray is certainly damned. All the blessed except infants have been saved by prayer. What he means by that is there are certain babies who were baptized, obviously made it to heaven, and they never knew how to pray. So he had to give that little exception because he's a great theologian. He's a doctor of the church. Anyway, St. Alphonsus Logori continues, All the damned have been lost through not praying. If they had prayed, they would not have been lost. And this is, and will be, their greatest torment in hell to think how easily they might have been saved only by asking God for his graces. But now for these miserable ones, the time for prayer is over. St. Alphonsus can always convict us uh, with so much love of God, but also some fear of God in there. And so notice again that a prayer is the make it or break it of salvation. And I think we get the answer to that in the mystical city of God. This is a description of Mary, the mother of God. It said, she hastened to offer herself as an acceptable sacrifice to the Most High, beginning from that instant with fervent desire to bless him, love him, and honor him, because she perceived that the bad angels and men failed to know and love him. So there we have the uh, whole reason why so many men and women and children do not love God. It's because they don't know him. To love God is to know him. To know him is to love him. And so that's why I'm giving you this series is even with all these problems in the church, you can still know everything going on in the church that's bad and still not be saved because you don't know Christ. And this is why we look at what the Father said about the life of Jesus that is just so important for our own salvation. Archbishop Vigano recently said, We will not be judged for the scandals of Bergoglio and his accomplices, but for our fidelity to the teaching of Christ. So there you have right there, you could know so much about the current church crisis, and still you're going to be judged on your fidelity to Christ. And that's why I give you this VLX and this RCT series, so you can really know Christ in VLX and really know his teaching in RCT. Now, I know most of my listeners out there are married with children, but we're going to talk about vocation specifically to celibacy today because today's section has been the launching point for numerous aspects of the Catholic Magisterium to explain celibacy. So even if you're not celibate, I still think you can get a lot out of this because it's truly a description of heaven. It's kind of the precursor to heaven, the antechamber, the beginning of heaven in today's section. And so let's talk briefly about vocation. The traditional teaching, as most of you know, is that if you can live celibacy, you should. Notice you don't have to wait for, you know, and this is really for young people who aren't married or celibate yet, who are trying to figure out their vocations. You do not have to wait for, like, some computer printout from the sky calling you to some magical vocation. The teaching of St. Paul is that unless you have a burning in your loins, you should live a celibate life if you're not already committed to marriage. You don't have to wait to find out if you're the next St. Vincent Ferrer or St. Catherine of Siena. The traditional teaching of the Catholic Church is that if you are not married and you can live celibacy, then you should live celibacy. You should commit yourself to it. I know it's very different from what most of us learn in the theology of the body, that there's some magical gift out there you have to wait for. No, no, no. The traditional teaching is if you can live it, you should. If you can live celibacy, you should. 1 Corinthians 7 in the ESV reads, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. 
for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 8-9. The Dewey Reims in the same section says, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they so continue even as I. But if they do not contain themselves, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to be burnt. And by burnt, he obviously means being burnt up in lust. I personally think the most underrated lines from celibacy come from our Lord in St. Luke, which is similar to today's passage in St. Matthew. But listen to our Lord as recorded by St. Luke. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. That was St. Luke chapter 20, verses 34 to 36. Quite a description of celibacy right there. Equal to angels, sons of God, sons of the resurrection. Now we're going to come back to that, but notice that everyone who is saved will be as the angels in heaven, but with physical bodies at the end of time. And so celibacy, I'm not saying that only celibates make it to heaven, but if you're married and you make it to heaven, you will be like a celibate with a body in heaven. And so celibacy, for those of us on earth who are already committed to that, that begins the angelic state already on earth, but only if it's lived correctly. As I put on Twitter this week, there are many other celibate vocations than just priest or nun that young people today should consider. But the Council of Trent infallibly states that although marriage is good, celibacy is higher. Celibacy is supreme above marriage. That's just the teaching of the church. And we're going to see it comes from St. Matthew today. And also notice that St. Paul just implied that celibacy is only the best if you're not burning with passion as a celibate. But if you are, it's better to marry. Now, I know that's not very romantic, but the church has always considered one of the gifts of marriage and this is listed long after childbearing and the unitive aspect of marriage. But long after that, one of the goals of marriage, or one of the gifts of marriage is remedy for concupiscence. And what that means is that marriage quells the burning for people who can't live celibacy. I know it's not very romantic, uh, but it's in the Bible and it's part of the magisterium. But again, if you can live celibacy without that burning in the loins, it is the supreme vocation. But again, if you're not living chastity, as a celibate, or if you're a celibate encouraging other to, others to fall, like James Martin and the Vatican apparatus today, then your state is obviously much worse than a married person who's living who is living chastity well, but of course according to their state in life. Notice the difference right there between chastity and celibacy. St. Thomas More, he's that English married lawyer and martyr for the Catholic faith in the 16th century. He once said he had decided to be a, quote, chaste husband rather than a licentious priest, end quote. And that is such a great quote. I'm going to link it in my blog containing it. The blog is called Why is Celibacy Higher Than, Mar Higher Than Marriage? That will be in my show notes. And again, that quote, better to be a chaste husband rather than a licentious priest. In other words, St. Thomas More would have burnt with passion without marriage. And again, it's not very romantic, but it's the remedy of concupiscence according to church teaching. And it's true, it's better to be a chaste married man than a priest who can't handle himself in celibacy. Because chastity as a married man or woman, notice again, I didn't say celibacy, but chastity, if you live it, leads to the angelic state in heaven where you will love your spouse more than you did even on earth, but you will not be married anymore. Why? Because God will be all in all. 
Now notice that I said you will love your spouse more in heaven than on earth. There are too many traditional Catholics today that think that just because the bond of marriage is dissolved at death, and just because we have the beatific vision, that none of our once earthly relationships will matter anymore. It's not true. In heaven, if you and I make it there, please God, you will love strangers a thousand times more what you could have on earth when you're in heaven. But you will love your friends and family in heaven a million times more than you could have or did love them on earth. And you'll recognize them. See, this ties into what I'm trying to tell people all the time, that heaven is more real than earth. So don't think of heaven as some drugged up jacuzzi with all this steam where there's less reality and you don't recognize people and stuff. Even though you will be staring God face to face in the beatific vision, please God, you will love the people that you loved on earth, including your spouse, a million times more in heaven than on earth. And they will still matter to you, um, even in heaven, even though marriage uh, will not have the physical aspect anymore. Why am I talking about this? Well, everything I'm talking about, it's not a total tangent to today's section in St. Matthew. The background to realize today in today's section is that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the body. Keep that in mind. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the body. The Sadducees did not. I think Scott Hahn has, Scott Hahn has that corny joke. That is why they are sad, you see. But they did not believe in the resurrection of the body. And so they think that just because Christ did, that Christ would also believe that marriage continues in heaven. Obviously, false premise there. And as you know, even the best marriages don't continue in heaven. And that is why a Catholic widow or widower can remarry. Marriage truly ends at death. Most of you know your theology without knowing why. But the Sadducees think that just because Jesus, and by the way, the Pharisees, something they happen to get right, know that we get our bodies back in heaven, that does not mean there will be procreation, new generation. So the Sadducees, trying to trip up our Lord with that silly question, whose wife will a woman be who's married to numerous men on earth? Whose will that be in heaven? It's based on their false premise that they have that marriage continues past death for those people like Jesus and the Pharisees that believe in the resurrection of the body. Let's hear what Father Lapide has to say about this. The Sadducees expected by this question to confound Christ. For if he should say the woman was the wife of one of the men, it would incite the other brothers to wrath and envy and perpetual strife. Again, this is a hypothetical that they're bringing to Christ. This woman who is married to numerous different brothers and then each brother successfully died, whose wife would this be in the resurrection? So even though it's a hypothetical, um, the Jews would present these things as a real possibility. So here's the dilemma. Again, if he should say the woman was the wife of the, one of the men, it would incite the other brothers to wrath and be in spiritual strife. Obviously, that couldn't happen in heaven. But then if, on the other hand, Christ had said that she was the wife in common of all the seven, they would have accused Christ as a teacher of shameful doctrine and public incest. It was as though they said, such are the absurdities which follow from the doctrine of the resurrection. This is Father Lapide continuing. Those pitiful creatures, imagine, he's speaking of the Pharisees, those pitiful creatures imagine themselves wise at the height of their folly. Then Christ, by a word, brushes aside their fallacy, as it were a spider's web, and shows them their ignorance by adding the third possibility, which they had overlooked, which these men with their crass and carnal minds never took into consideration, namely, that in the world to come, this widow would be the wife of no one. That's Catholic teaching. She would be the wife of no one. Now, 
should these Sadducees have known that? Yes, it's already in the Bible. You know, when I was in seminary, I was taught a big, big error that in the Old Testament, there is no resurrection of the body. And I already knew that was wrong because I knew enough Bible apologetics, even in my quote-unquote conservative seminary, to know that my Bible teachers, especially one specific nun that people thought was conservative, but is a total modernist, uh, believed, or rather taught, that you couldn't see the resurrection of the body in the Old Testament. Well, Father Lapidae shows right here certain apologetic lines right here. We know that the Jews had access to believe in the resurrection of the body even before the birth of Christ because of these quotes from Scripture. Job, 1925, 2 Maccabees 7, 9 and forward, 2 Maccabees 12, 44, Isaiah 26, 19, Isaiah 66, 14, Ezekiel 37, 1, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37, 9, Daniel 12, 12 and elsewhere. And so who taught me in seminary that the Jews didn't believe in the resurrection were wrong. However, the Sadducees only accepted the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So notice what I just read you. All those quotes from the Old Testament proving the resurrection from the body, of the body, none of those were from the Torah. And so that's one reason why the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the body and thought they could trip up Jesus. And verse 29 in the Dewey Reims, And Jesus answering said to them, You err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. That word in Greek is dunamin, root of our word in English, dynamite. Father Lapide defines it as vigor, strength, or power. They do not know the vigor, strength, or power of God, what he has the power to do after somebody dies. Father Lapide says this is as if Christ were saying, you do not know that God is omnipotent and therefore can raise to life again the bodies which have been reduced to dust. And speaking of dust, what was the Catholic Church's teaching before Vatican II on cremation? You couldn't do it. Was that because it was impossible for God to collect all of the dust of a person who, let's talk about like St. Maximilian Kolbe. He was obviously executed with, I think it was carbolic acid, since he couldn't starve to death because he was so united to God. Fill him with, I think it was carbolic acid. Where did his body go? Clearly it went to the smokestacks of Auschwitz. Is God able at the end of time to reconstitute the body of St. Maximilian Kolbe, who was turned into dust in the smokestacks of Auschwitz, of course he is. So why is the church against cremation? The church, at least for 1900-something years before Vatican II, was against cremation because it was a subjective act of faith against the resurrection of the body. It's not because God couldn't reconstitute dust better than he can bones in the ground, but it's because on our end, it seems to be a denial of the resurrection of the body. That's not my words. That's just what the church has always taught. So uh, I highly encourage you to be buried, not cremated. And back to celibacy as the preamble to heaven. St. Luke again, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. You know, we are so used to hearing of these priest scandals that we forget it is the inerrant word of God that a celibate truly living truly living celibacy, is already in an angelic state. Even a son of God, even he is a son of the resurrection. I mean, can you imagine how many mothers on the day of their son's ordination would go around and say, yeah, my, my son just became a son of the resurrection. It sounds too grandiose, but truly this is our Lord's words. And again, I know a lot of you aren't celibate, you're raising kids, but I show you this to understand that our Lord meant that that state of celibacy is to be the beginning of heaven. 
And since we're all made for heaven, that's why you can meditate on all of this, even if you're going to have another two or four, six or eight kids. And by the way, if your kids are old enough to listen to this, please have them listen to this so that they can understand the glories of celibacy as almost the same as the glory of the angels, not just seeing celibacy as what you give up in life. And this is why the church fathers link the state of celibacy to what everyone in heaven, whether they were celibate or married on earth, will have in the resurrection of the body. For they shall be spiritual, glorious, immortal, and eternal as God is, says Father Lapide. For as much as they are born the children of the resurrection and are born again and procreated anew to a blessed and endless life, therefore they shall need nor delight in the procreation of children. Chastity is the most angelic of all the virtues, for to this Christ refers here, they shall be as the angels of God, since they know not by experience the meaning of lust. St. Cyril of Jerusalem says, quote, Virginity is the conversation of angels and the purity of incorporeal nature. Conversation can also be translated from the Latin as lifestyle. Virginity is the lifestyle of angels and the purity of incorporeal nature. St. Basil teaches that virginity is the seed of future incorruption. Indeed, that virgins anticipate here and begin the future likeness with the angels in heaven and desire to be rewarded with its perfection there by constant struggling with and victory over the flesh here. St. Basil adds that chastity makes us like not only to the angels but to God himself. As Luke says, they are the children of God. St. Basil says, How great and glorious a thing is virginity, which makes a man most like unto God incorruptible, that he should receive the similitude of God in himself as in a most clear mirror for God, from God himself with his favors flowing unto him after the manner of a most sweet ray of light. St. Basil continues, Truly those who observe continence are angels, who while living in the corruptible flesh preserve the life of mortals by enlightening it. Moreover, they are not angels of some lower order, but surely of a most illustrious and noble one. For they, freed from carnal ties, maintain their integrity in the heavens, which in their place and nature are inviolable and established in the presence of the Most High God, the King of all. But they, struggling at length on earth against the allurements and pleasures of the flesh, and by a perpetual campaign conquering the temptations of the devil, shall have preserved themselves incorrupt with an angelic purity, a distinguished virtue in the eyes of the Creator." Now, keep in mind, I'm not encouraging any married people out there to live a Josephite marriage unless there is a two-way agreement to that, of course. And remember, if you are married, the pre-Vatican II main reason for being married is the procreation and education of children for the population of heaven. So I'm not reading this on celibacy to make anybody feel bad. I'm just showing you what the end state of man and woman should be in the resurrection of the body if we please God and make it to heaven. And we celibates are supposed to be little walking icons of that already on earth. And I know it's hard to imagine after all these scandals, but that's truly the goal. In fact, St. Bernard says, What is more beautiful than chastity, which makes clean what hath been conceived by an unclean seed, which makes a servant of an enemy, and in short, an angel of a man, now listen to this next line by St. Bernard. This stopped me in my tracks when I first read this. For a chaste man differs from an angel only in felicity, not in virtue. Although the chastity of the one has more happiness, the chastity of the other is stronger. 
So what he's saying right there is the celibate state of the angels in heaven is already happier because we walk through this valley of tears, but the celibate on earth is already living a stronger chastity than the angels. Now, why would St. Bernard say that? Well, he would say it's stronger for the celibate, priest or nun, or single person or brother who's living it because of what he has to fight against. So why did I call today's section the God of the living? Well, in the second to last verse of today, Matthew 23, 32, we hear, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. St. John Chrysostom says that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in this sentence, they do not signify the souls of only those patriarchs, but of all men. For all live to him, as our Lord says in the same section in Luke chapter 20, verses 38. What does that mean, all live to God? Well, another translation is, all are alive in him. That doesn't mean everybody is saved, but like I said earlier, those in heaven are actually more alive than those of us on earth. The Greek uses the gerunds there in verse 32, which makes it very rich. Let's look at the Greek there. It's ouk estin hotheos. Ouk estin hotheos literally means not is the God. That's the word-for-word translation. But a sense-for-sense translation there is simply God is not. And then the rest of the sentence Necron alazonton means dying but living. So put that together and it is, he is not God of the dead but of the living. Or in the DRB, he is not the God of the dead but of the living. Now keep in mind in the Greek I just parsed out, necron has the same root word as necrosis in English. Gives you quite a visual right there. God's not the God of the necrotic. And then we have that word in Greek, zonton, that's the same root word of the English female or female English name Zoe. Probably most of you have an evangelical Protestant friend who has a daughter that they name Zoe. And it's actually a good name because it means alive, alive in God. Or in today's verse, the gerund, living, as in living in God. And isn't that what we all want to be forever? Living in God, forever in heaven. Do you realize heaven, the definition, the Catholic definition is you will be looking God face to face forever in heaven. That's why we have to keep our eyes pure and our clothes modest if we have any plans to make it there. And all those quotes I gave you from saints a thousand years ago kind of starts to illuminate why Our Lady of Fatima would say most souls go to hell through sins of the sixth and ninth commandment. Okay, verse 32 again. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And then it's quite amazing our Lord links that to celibates who produce no biological children. How can that be? Well, the goal is for us to produce many spiritual children. And that's part, not the entire thing, because there's obviously babies that were baptized that immediately go to heaven. But that's part of how priests, nuns, brothers, consecrated virgins can bank on that promise that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Because part of it is that we are expected to produce spiritual children. I know that's twisted way out of line by by certain people who've become predators saying, you're my spiritual daughter. I've seen things go way off the rails on that. So we have to be careful using that term. Um, I asked my friend Layla Miller about this recently. How about the people that talk about spiritual sons and daughters, but then misuse that? She said, really, the term spiritual father should be in the communal sense, not the individualistic sense. That kind of helps prevent these scandals. But anyway, however you see it, the goal is for priests and nuns, not with each other, but through their prayer lives and their sacrifice to produce many spiritual children, which is, again, part of how we should bank on that promise. 
Father Lapide reminds us how close we are in Matthew 22 to the passion and death of Jesus. In other words, these words that we heard today in the gospel, remember, we are less than a week from the crucifixion of Jesus. But this is tied in to this whole theology that we're talking about. Father Lapide says it's as if Jesus were saying, Moreover, I would not glory in them unless they were alive, for as much as I am especially the living God and the giver of life, they themselves therefore live as to the soul and consequently shall live in the resurrection as to the body also, and that too in a very short time, even as it were in a few days, when I shall rise from death. Then shall I raise them also from the dead and shall carry them with me in triumph to heaven." And then Father Lapide reminds us of Matthew 27, 52. Well, he points that out, even before the resurrection of the body, that the people alive during that first Holy Week would have a preview of that. What does that mean? Well, listen to this astonishing line from Matthew 27. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Remember, this is on Good Friday. This literally happened on Good Friday after Jesus died. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So we will learn when you get to that section in VLX that that happened literally, not figuratively. Obviously, you believe that if you're still with me in this series. But remember that first Good Friday, many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, that means died before Jesus was probably even born, were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. We will see in VLX when we get there that one of the things the fathers say that these resurrected Jewish saints who came out of the ground when Jesus was about to go into the ground, one of the things they did is they went face to face to the Pharisees and chief priests and accused them of what they had just done. Thank you to all my benefactors, Spiritual Material. I keep this free for everyone who cannot donate. And I remember both groups at my masses. Please say an hour follow for me at Benedictio de Omnipotentis, Patris et Fidi, et Spiritus Santi, Descendet Superbos, et Maniat Semper. Amen.